0: And uh we're going to spend some time in the word kind of starting <coughs> Psalms tonight and uh this will kind of be like um like a partial series where it's going to last about 12 years. Um <laughs> there's 150 chapters in uh the book of Psalms and um you know I, it's a wonderful book for where we're at on these Wednesday night gatherings where you know we are here to uh, be fed the word and to, to be taught doctrine and truth and be grounded. Um, we're here to pray and to intercede. And, uh, and part of the vision for these Wednesday nights is that, you know, a part of the prayer time would be for, uh, the nations and, um, and specifically wanting to focus on unreached and unengaged peoples. Uh, and so the Psalms are just incredible for, for that. Um, even tonight, uh, the goal is to get through Psalm one and two and, uh, I feel like there's things for us and I feel like there's things for our prayer for the nations. Um, Psalm means song of praise and there's 150 songs of praise in this, uh, in this book. Uh, normally these songs are set with accompanying instruments. It was known as the temple hymn book, uh, for hundreds of years. It was the hymn book uh for oh, i better turn my phone off that's a good reminder for all of us <laughs> and uh it's also like the temple devotional book for hundreds of years and uh through the first and second temple periods. so uh moses wrote one of the psalms 73 were written by david two that were written without his name ascribed to them but the new testament authors that would quote it Would attribute it to David. Uh, Twelve were written by Asaph. uh, Two were by Solomon. And uh, ten by the sons of Korah, the Levite. Uh, Ethan wrote one and 48 are anonymous. Uh, Within the book of Psalms, there's five books within the one. Uh, So we are going to begin in book one, which is Psalms one through forty one. And each book ends with a doxology or a praise. For instance, if you look at the last verse of the last chapter of book one, how are we doing? Is this thing working? Trying to record these so that we can get them online. It's not for micro, I mean, amplifying purposes. I don't know my words. Um, This is the last verse of the first book. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So each book will kind of have a a closing doxology like that. Book two is chapter 42 through 72. Book three is 73 through 89. Book four is 90 through 106. And book five is 107 through 150. Uh, And that 150 is like that last psalm, which is a doxology, a praise to the Lord. Uh, So here we find ourselves. And if you have your Bible, you just go there, Psalm 1 tonight, uh, where we have the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly contrasted. Verse six is kind of the key to understanding this psalm. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So in this psalm, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly are contrasted. So we've got verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, uh, and so in this first verse, we kind of have a progression of sin, don't we? We've got this walking, standing, sitting. <laughs> there's this, hey, urch stopped. Oh, now I'm full blown into it. Um, and uh, you've got a blessing for the man that does not do these things. And this blessing is actually in the plural, which means there's so much blessing. There's so much happiness. It means... To be supremely happy and to read the emotion of the writer would be to say, oh, how very blessed. Very similar to the Beatitudes that we were in uh, this summer in the service in the park. Blessed is the man who, uh, you know, these these things as uh, Matthew chapter 5 begins. Um, And so we have this, you know, there's a blessing if we're not walking in the council of the ungodly or this speaks of traveling we're traveling along in the council of the ungodly uh, this means the advice the plans the decisions of the ungodly and we're going to see this word ungodly repeated and part of just what we learn in how to uh, study the bible is wherever there's repeated phrases you glean something from that there's something trying to be communicated ungodly is going to come up a lot in this chapter uh, so Uh, ungodly means someone who's guilty and someone who's wicked and, uh, and, and there's to be a consideration of, of who we're getting counsel from. It's amazing how many people get their counsel from Dr. Phil and Oprah and, you know, all those (laughs) daytime TV folks. And that's where they get their counsel. Uh, they throw that up online and you're like, oh man, oh, that is not, not wisdom. Uh, it's, you know, it's good to check and like, okay, where am I getting this from? Who is counseling me right now? Is it based upon scripture? Is it something that, you know, the godly leaders that God's placed around me are also teaching in truth? Uh, And so it's good to not be traveling in the counsel uh, of the ungodly. You'll watch someone like Oprah and you you get sucked in because, oh, 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 she just gave away about a a bunch of cars, you know. Like, wow, okay. And then there's like 80% truth and then what's so subtle is the the 20% or 50% whatever you know non-truth that is deceit it's wickedness all right um and so whether it's the bible teaching that you're getting be a Berean search the scriptures see if these things are so uh you know marriage counseling you know uh you know it's it's amazing how much marriage counseling out there is based upon man's wisdom and so often it says be happy. That's God's chief end for you is for you to be happy. So if that means ditching your spouse, go be happy. And and we've just got to curb that so much that that's not your chief end is being happy. Your chief end is glorifying God, and sticking with this difficult marriage. That's the uh, that's the the way to glorify God. There's there's godly versus ungodly, wicked, guilty counsel. Uh, then there's the individual who stands. So it's kind of gone from walking and traveling to standing, which speaks of conducting yourself in the path of sinners Uh, and so as we studied two weeks ago in in their closing uh sermon on the mount teaching uh there's a there's a path and it's narrow that leads to life and remember the original how narrow is that path that leads to life but wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction and so um you know there's there's a path that we choose And the righteous man is not afraid to choose the road less traveled, knowing that it will be truth. It will lead to blessing and happiness, though it may be a difficult one. Uh, the the gate is narrow that leads to life. Uh, and so standing and conducting yourself in the path of sinners, that's, that's going to lead to the opposite of blessing, damnation, judgment, perishing. The very last verse tells us that in this chapter, and then it moves to a No longer standing and just conducting yourself in that path, but a sitting, which speaks of making it your dwelling place, sitting in the seat of the scornful, the chatterers, the scoffers, the mockers, the ridicule. You know, I've really been praying if if there's a word for us in this as a church and, and I feel like I was not going to, and now I feel the Lord saying, just speak it. That in the midst of this season of moving forward in the direction that the leaders that God has appointed by the Holy Spirit, watch out because we're finding right now there are chatterers right now. There are murmurers and it's it's just coming to attention. And and we want to give an exhortation to those that want to be walking in truth. Don't chatter back. You know, be very careful to just represent Christ well. And if you feel that you're suffering in this, then suffer well like Jesus did and take the hits and trust Yourself, trust this church to the one who deals righteously. But there may also be words of exhortation and correction to those that are chatters, gossipers, murmurers, sowing seeds of division. These are things that we see all throughout the Scripture that never end well with those individuals. And so, uh, in a season like this, um, be careful where you're dwelling. Are you dwelling in the seeding, seeding yourself? Among the chatterers, the scoffers, those that are mocking the direction of the church, not a good place to be. We would really encourage you to to use discernment in that. But this whole idea of walking, standing, sitting, this progression of sin, for me, it brought back the the memory of Lot from Genesis chapter 13. You remember uh, Abraham left uh, the Ur of of the Chaldees and he went and uh, he uh, took his nephew Lot with him. And over time, their their herdsmen began to fight against each other. And Abraham had the wisdom to say, let's separate. And so uh, he let Lot choose where he could go with his herd. And he looked up and, and Lot saw the more beautiful land uh, to the south. And so he went to the south uh, where the grazing seemed wonderful and marvelous. Uh, there wasn't seemingly a lot of counsel. There didn't seem to be a lot of prayer in that decision. He just looked at what his eyes saw, saw what was beautiful and took his herds down there. So it says in Genesis 13, just hop down to verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east. They separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And so it went from like shepherding your flock and finding good grazing ground to pitching your tents and getting closer and closer, even as far as Sodom. And there's something that's there's a reason that's mentioned, because the very next verses and these guys were really exceedingly wicked. And so uh, as you go to chapter 19, verse one, it says two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of sodom that means he was he was part of the community he was part of the uh the judgment and the elders sitting in the gate meant you were part of the part of the leadership even of that town so he went from herding to camping out and in the path and then full-blown like in their midst a part of what they're doing so much so that you see when the angels go in there to to prevent them from being you know molested essentially he offers his daughters instead so there's just there's there's tough stuff there but this path of the psalm for me was reminiscent of was it was reminiscent of lot um psalm 26 verses 4 and 5 uh can we go? Is there anyone here just would rather not read if I have people read verses tonight? I like to share the wealth. Just, no, okay, 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 cool. That's okay. No, no hate, no worries. All right. Uh Courtney, we'll just start over here and kind of beep 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 work our way around. Read Psalm 26, 4 and 5, for us. All right, so we'll get there in 26 weeks and, and study that again. But um and so we see what what the righteous man does not do. I have not, okay? I will not sit. With the wicked. Verse two says what the righteous man does, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So he has a joy, and he makes his business being in the law of the Lord, or the teachings of the Lord. The Psalmist in one nineteen will be there in a long time. Um but it's all about like the Word of God and how the Psalmist delights in the Word. Cheryl, you read Uh, This passage, Psalm 119, 14 through 16, Uh, you'll get, we'll get there. You know, if you have never read the longest chapter in the Bible, there is so much of that pleasure that this psalmist has in the word of God. And if you don't have that, man, maybe tonight we could pray for you. If you struggle in reading the word and delighting in the word, um, some of us can just say, man, I remember the day that the Lord just gave me a passion for his word and delighting in it and meditating in it day and night, day and night meditation. Some of us great in the morning meditations. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Saw my life flash before my eyes there, but not so great in the evening meditations. And it was so good last night. My wife led our home spiritually <laughs> and uh, not a normal thing, but um, try it. I hope it's not going to be a normal thing. And she's just like, man, can we?" like, not watch America's home, Funniest Home Videos right now, and can we, like, read some Advent stuff? And I was like, oh, I was totally thinking that. But you know. And so we read, you know, uh, some some Advent uh, things and preparing our hearts for celebrating the the coming of the Lord Jesus. And uh, so just the evening things as well. And day and night, and then as you look at other texts, it's just all the time. You're walking on the path, you're driving in the car, you're eating your meals, you're going down for bed, you're rising up. Let's just, just delight in the, the Lord, meditate on it all the time. How awesome we have, you know, podcasts and we have CSN radio. We just have so much available for us. Bible audio. Uh, you know, if you have a radio and you're able to have that with you at work, um, or, you know, there's so much time that you can spend meditating on the word of God. Joshua one eight David Gusick says in Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty the mind. This is dangerous because an empty mind may present an open invitation to deception or a demonic spirit. But in Christian meditation, the goal is to fill your mind with the word of God. This can be done by carefully thinking about each word and phrase and applying it to oneself and praying it back to the Lord. Uh, It's the difference between taking string cheese and pulling it one little string at a time versus, you know, Three bites, that's no good. Nobody likes that. Don't do that. <laughs> it's so much better to just, I literally get the tiniest little string I can get off of it and just savor That's me. Uh, Spurgeon cites a guy named Ashwood who says, meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and nutritive virtue of the word into the heart and life. This is the way the godly bring forth much fruit. So, Meditating on the word. He shall be like a tree. We're totally going to get through chapter two tonight. No doubt. Verse three says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And I like the the literal translation is the leaf shall not lose heart. That leaf will just keep, keep going, keep going. And whatever he does shall prosper. So, This tree, it's a picture of this righteous man, is getting sustenance. There's nutritional value going into this tree. This is a tree that has roots. It's on stable ground. There's life. And where there's life in a tree, there's what? There's fruits. That's this tree. Uh, Someone's smart. Someone went to college over there. Psalm 92, 12 uh, through 14. Pam, you want to take this? Awesome. Jeremiah 17.8, Ken. I love all these descriptive words. Flourishing, bearing fruit, fresh and flourishing. Um, Spreading out roots by the river. Uh, Just health and and just good life in this tree. And whatever he does shall prosper. It, It isn't that this man has the Midas touch and everything he does makes him rich and comfortable. But in the life of the righteous man, God brings forth something good and wonderful out of everything, even tough and rough circumstances, bring forth something prosperous, something good. God works through sufferings of a righteous man. That's the case with Joseph. We're not going to read it tonight, but uh, in Genesis 39, 2 through 4 and verse 23, everything Joseph did because he trusted in the Lord, even though there was rough and tough situations and time in prison, the Lord was causing everything Joseph did to prosper. That's the picture that we're seeing here. Verse four, the ungodly are not so. So here's the contrast with the ungodly, which means wicked and guilty, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Love to have Mark just give us a good old preaching on chaff. You probably know a little bit about it, huh? (laughs) Tis not the season, maybe in the summertime, huh? (laughs) <laughs> we will dust we will dust you off when you come in but the chaff is that unusable part of the grain the shell that would come off so that that grain could be usable oftentimes they would set it out there where the wind would blow often on a cliff and as the wind's coming through they would beat the chaff and flick the grain up in the air and the chaff would just fall off and fly off and, and it's worthless and no one missed it nobody cared if anything they hated it it was on them made you itchy uh, and Gideon, you know, that's what he was doing. As he was hiding from the Midianites, was in the threshing floor, uh, hiding from them, uh, thrash, uh, threshing the wheat. But um, we just have this this difference here, where we have a mighty, solid, determined, nourishing tree bearing fruit, and then we have a uh, just not even a, a plant, but something that comes off of a plant that is just useless, annoying. Uh, something we try to get uh, rid of. Uh, Spurgeon called chaff intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, and easily carried away. A big difference between that mighty oak and the, and the shell off of a, of a grain of wheat. Uh, verse 5, therefore, because they are like chaff carried away in the wind, therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, the ungodly will not go from a sitting position where they're sitting with the scornful, as, as Lot sitting there in the, in the gates of Sodom, to you know all of a sudden standing in a righteous place of judgment. This word stand means to be set up, raised up in honor, established and exalted. And so those that are sitting with the scornful and the wicked and the ungodly will not be raised up to a place of judgment. Now, uh, I wrote down, like, what, what judgment? What's talking about? And I never actually researched it. But I wrote some options down. Uh, you know, this, this could be speaking of the, the Bema Seat judgment, which is for Christians. Uh, we read about it in uh, 2 Corinthians, where Christians receive their rewards on their judgment day. It's not a judgment of wrath. It's a reward ceremony. As, as the Olympics have them, you know, and, and we're giving rewards according to the, the service done to the Lord. Uh, but then, you know, it could also be the judgment of angels, as we see in First Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that you will judge angels? Uh, maybe that's one in, the, you know, maybe that's, I don't know. Uh, perhaps that's what I mean, certainly the ungodly won't be judging the angels. Um, uh, and then there's the great white throne judgment, which is where the ungodly will Be judged, but they will not be judging. Uh, And then we also see there's times where uh, believers will be judging matters in the millennial reign. But once again, that's that's believers. So so really, the ungodly will not be standing and exalted at the bema seat judgment. They will not be judging the angels. They will not judge matters during the millennial reign. But they will be judged in the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter uh, twenty. So uh, verse six, we're going to close with this one tonight so that we have time to pray for the nations. But the first chapter two, it's so good for the nations. I wanted to get there. Okay, we'll do it. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. We're on page four of 11, so that may not be a good idea. But... <laughs> verse six, the closing verse, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Again, there's this traveling concept and here we have the way known which is what christians were known as in acts 13 we see that they were known as the way until they were recalled they were were called christians uh and so here's this journey of the righteous and the conduct of the righteous the hebrew says the lord is knowing the way of the righteous he is constantly looking at their way um the Lord knows it. He knows if they're walking in darkness or walking in righteousness. But the ungodly will perish. Uh, that picture of the chaff being destroyed, uh, perhaps being burned or something, uh, blown away by the wind, uh, the ungodly are that. There's a perishing. They're, the language means squandering. They've squandered their life. Um, they are uh, expelled is another translation of this word kicked out as we see that's just so true of the ungodly um, but the lord knows who's who the lord knows um, that day jesus says it'll be like the judgment of the wheat and the tares everyone looks the same it all looks like wheat but there's actual wheat and the lord and his knowledge will know who the tares are uh second timothy two nineteen. we didn't get we were going to get around that was the plan we're only getting to, to paula tonight <laughs> awesome so The Lord knows those who are His. like we studied at that last sermon on the Mount teaching. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord on that day. And he's going to say away from me. I never knew you, you know, depart from me, you workers of iniquity or you practicers of lawlessness. Let's do chapter two real quick. We'll never get through the book of Psalms if we don't take a chance. Uh, Like many Psalms, the Psalm of chapter two is emphasized in the final verse we can defy God and perish or surrender to him and be blessed. The Psalm itself does not identify its author, but acts four clearly attributes it to David. Why do the nations rage? Verse one says, and the people plot a vain thing. There's a genuine mystificate, genuine mystification in this guy wondering why people would do this against God. It is vain. It is worthless. We see that it's Gentiles that are doing this and that, They are the nations. It's all the nations. Uh, They are raging. They are thronging tumultuously and restless in rebellion against the Lord. Uh, They have plotting going on as rulers. Now, this word plot is a similar word to chapter 1 where it said meditate on the law. Uh, It's the same thing. And here we have like a negative sense of this meditation where you're growling And you're deciding something with muttering is the language. And so we have these rulers that are growling against the Lord. We'll see verse two, who they're doing this again. These are all worthless delusions. It's vanity. Verse two says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, The kings of the earth setting themselves. This means they're taking a stand of resistance. And then we've got rulers who are also associating with one another. They're taking counsel. This is chapter one. We saw people who are ungodly. And and what were they doing with counsel? Were they standing? Or I'm sorry, they were walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Here we have rulers associating in unity together in their uh, ungodly counsel together. Uh, And it's all against the Lord. It's against his anointed saying... The Lord, Uh, you know, this is the word Yahweh here, uh, and and we also have the the anointed one in the same verse. So we have God the Father, essentially, in the word the Lord, and we have anointed here speaking of Jesus. It means Christ. It means Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, This is what Andrew called Jesus when he introduced him to his brother Peter. He said, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And so all of these rulers, all of these kings are coming together, setting themselves against Jesus, against the Messiah. And they're saying, verse three, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I find it interesting that he uses this plurality here, speaking about Yahweh and the anointed one and how and they're, they're plotting against two of the three of the Trinity here. Uh, Let us break their bonds and cast away their cords from us. This is how the Lord, as the king above all kings, is, you know, he's going to have order. He's going to have, um, you know, definition as to who are his. And these individuals want to break the bonds in pieces, the ropes that would hold. And then the second word, cords, there is an ornamental rope. What? You can't go through chapter two with us? Come on. Just kidding. You knew I'd call you out. Uh, cord speaks of an ornamental bond, something special, and they want to destroy both of these things. Um, we don't have time tonight and this might be why our, our uh, my notes are so long, but verse after verse here, we've got Matthew 12:14. the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Matthew 26, three, then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, what, what was called Caiaphas and verse after verse after verse and you know before he went to Jerusalem they were plotting against him when he finally came to Jerusalem they were plotting against him this is all very prophetic of the anointed one of the Christ it's great to see uh, Jesus in the Old Testament isn't it in Acts chapter 4 verse 23 and that's part of our mission statement that we will preach from the Christ centered word Uh, we won't preach ourselves we're going to preach Jesus uh, at this church Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three through twenty-nine. Um, uh, right after some of the first persecution in the early church, they find comfort in quoting Psalm two. Linda, will you read this passage? Twenty-three. You get the long one. Jason had nothing compared to what you got. Great job. So, what do they do when they're being persecuted and for the testimony of Jesus? They cry out to the Lord. They declare His sovereignty. They quote these scriptures that that were known from of old that the rulers of the world were always going to set themselves against the anointed one and against the Christ. And here they realize this is prophecy about Jesus. So uh, really neat to see this verse uh, lived out in the early church and, and almost like a commentary on it by the early church in their prayer there. Uh, But notice their trust in the sovereignty of God in the midst of persecution and in the midst of tough stuff and how, There was that prophecy in Psalm 2, Lord, and then Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders did whatever your predetermined purpose said was going to happen. They just trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, guys. Tonight, trust in the Lord. Whatever you're going through, trust in the Lord. Lainey, I did something really stupid. Maybe I said this already. I let her watch something scary. She can't, like, go in a room next to us, like our pantry, without us. She's scared. She's getting a little bit over it. But, um, you know, I I finally had to be like, Lainey, you're just not trusting the Lord. You know, you're not trusting the Lord. Trust the Lord. Put your tr- believe that He's there with you, that He cares for you, that He's in control if, if a werewolf's gonna get you or not. Okay, that lets you in a little bit of what I Okay. Anyways. And so I did this to her. I was like, Laney, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. Okay? Whenever you're scared, we gotta do this. You gotta get your eyes on Jesus. You gotta trust the Lord. And so, you know, now she's like, mm-hmm, you know, and uh it's getting better, it's getting better. So all of this plotting is going on and there needs to be a trust in the Lord. And verse four says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So the kings and the rulers are plotting and planning and assembling themselves together and counseling against the Lord and against his Christ. And verse four says that the one who's sitting, here's another posture here, it means the same thing. He has his dwelling place in the heavens. He is laughing. He's actually scoffing at them mocking them he's entertained by them the language says that they're actually thinking that they're you know thwarting him at all you know getting a kick out of this and so he holds them in derision uh laughing and holding them in derision it's it's um there's a mockery here um g campbell morgan writes this derisive laughter of god is the comfort of all those who love righteousness it is the laughter of the might of holiness. It is the laughter of the strength of love. God does not exult over the suffering of sinning me. He does hold in derision all the proud boastings and violence of such as seek to prevent his accomplishment of his will. And that's been found time and time again in history. When anyone's tried to thwart the word of God and the, and the mission of God, God has, um, what was, what's the word? It's not one that I use. Holds them in derision. Holds them in derision. He's going to frustrate their plans uh, as he laughs at them. Verse five. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Oh, he's going to speak to them, but it's in wrath. That the language means uh, breathing heavily out of both nostrils. You can picture like a bull or something. Just <laughs> Breathing, and it means, the word means nose. It means face or dual nostrils, breathing in anger. And he's going to speak to them, but in that, right? Uh, And getting over a cold, I gotta quit doing that. And he will distress them in his deep displeasure. He will bewilder and make them afraid with fierce anger. Verse six, yet I have set my king on my holy hill, I've set them, him upon Zion, upon the hill of my holiness, is the literal translation. And Jesus is, is uh, he was set up in his glory of the cross there on Mount Zion. And one day he will set up his throne, the throne of David. Uh, and we will be there to see that one day. Uh, and there I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. This is an incredible verse that speaks of the deity of the Lord Jesus. But this begotten doesn't mean created. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses like to use this verse as if Jesus was a created being. Uh, it's something different. Um, let's see if I can could read that. No, I'm not going to tonight. I can't find it. Um, there's a difference, but the word begotten here actually is speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. In Hebrews uh, chapter one, verse five, we have this here again, where they're saying that Jesus is better than the angels because he has been called the Son of God, and that today I've begotten you. Um, no angel's ever been called my son, and no angel's ever called the Lord the Father. Uh, and and then later on, uh, perhaps it happened before, but in Acts thirteen twenty nine, we see the context of this verse is that it found its fulfillment. Acts chapter 13, verse 33, for the sake of time tonight. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so he's this first fruits. Uh, he's not the first born of all creation, he's the first ranked of all creation. And he's been resurrected in this begotten. Uh, Bishop Pearson writes, Christ has a fourfold right to the title son of God. First of all, by generation as begotten of God. Secondly, by commission as sent by God. Thirdly, by resurrection as the first begotten of the dead. And fourth, by actual possession as heir of all. It goes from this declaration of the deity of the anointed one in Psalm chapter two to verse eight, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth of your, uh, for your possessions. What does that say? What are we in? Verse 8? I think I mistyped that. And the ends of the earth for your possessions, right? Uh, what a beautiful verse. We're going to close tonight with this song about this. But it's, it's the Father speaking to the Son Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance. All of these kings and all of these rulers that have been plotting against you, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. You've risen from the dead victorious. You ask of me and I will give the nations and the ends of the earth for inheritance and for possessions. Uh, the Psalms 22, 27 and 72, 8 speak of these things. Um, and then there's an exciting consummation in Revelation 11:15. 15. Uh, Dan, will you read Revelation 11:15? So this is, you know, midway. Well, this is actually a paragraphical, uh, per- parenthetical chapter in the book of Revelation, kind of filling in what's going on during the tribulation period. And we've got this shot to a worship scene in heaven, where there's a declaration of what's happening with the kingdoms of the world. It's an exciting uh, thing where we see Psalm two, eight, and nine uh, fulfilled. Uh, verse nine. Of our psalm says, "You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel." Uh, we see that in Revelation nineteen fifteen. Uh, Ron, so we see that you know final battle there in, in the in the end of the battle of Armageddon, where he comes out of the heavens in power and great glory, and he strikes them down with the sword of his mouth. He breaks them with a rod of iron, dashes them to pieces. Like a potter's vessel, the blood is up to the height of the horse's bridles there. Uh, Prophetic of of Jesus. Jesus is the hero, you guys. In the Psalms, Jesus is the hero. In Genesis, Jesus is the hero. And in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is the hero. Uh, Verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings. Knowing all of this, they didn't have the book of Revelation, but they had Psalm chapter 2. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. This could also be said: worship the Lord with reverence. All you kings of the earth, rejoice in a shout of exultation, as I amplify it there for you. Shout out in exultation and with trembling, all you kings of the earth. I was just saying prayer for our president and for Vladimir Putin and you know just uh, Kim Jong. Is it Un now? Is it Un as the new one or Ill? Ill. Camera. We prayed for him, but I don't remember the name. Uh, just thinking of these guys, you know, praying for these kings. Oh, that they would be warned. There's a warning here. Be wise, Vladimir. Be wise, Barack Obama. Worship the Lord with reverence and shout out and rejoice to him and, uh, ch- with trembling of your heart. There's humility there. Verse 12, kiss the sun, lest he be angry. I like that, don't you? <laughs> kiss the sun, lest he be angry. This is a kiss of affectionate submission. There's two things there. There's submission in this kiss, but there's also affection. He's Lord, and he's also a friend. Uh, It's an amazing relationship. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled. But a while. Uh, You remember that picture of the dual nostrils blowing out the air in wrath. That's what it speaks of. It also means, uh, it speaks of the building up of, of anger Almost like a dam, you know, and just over the centuries, the wrath of God against unrighteousness is being built up, and one day that dam will break, and the wrath of God will be poured out upon the Christ-rejecting world. Uh, and we see that in Revelation six, the beginning of the tribula- tribulation period, six sixteen through seventeen. So they're just they're realizing the wrath of God upon them there. And the final statement: Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him, or take refuge in him um there's a blessing just like our psalm one was the blessed and here we end with a blessed oh how supremely happy are those who take refuge in the lord in all seasons of life trust the lord trust the lord trust the lord in the lean times and trust the lord in the fat times trust the lord trust the lord there's a blessing there psalm 5 uh, 11 doc will you read that There's joy, there's blessing, there's uh, shouting for joy because of that trust in him. He's the one who defends us. Um, We love his name here in this place. We can be joyful in him tonight. Uh, Guzik writes, those who defy God are broken, but those who depend on him are blessed. The psalmist leaves the choice with everyone, broken or blessed. And so uh, tonight as we pray for Uzbekistan... Um, just good psalms to have, uh, in praying over our church and praying over, uh, just the season that we're in, the direction that we're going, uh, and praying for the nations. Uh, we've got, even today, we've got the nations raging, uh, against the Lord and against his anointed one. They're plotting, they're scheming, they're unrighteous and the wicked are plotting against, uh, Yahweh and against his Christ. And as much as they try to set their, their hearts against him and rebel and, and have a tumultuous, uh, rebellion against him, he's not moved by that. He's set in, he's in heaven and you know, it's an interesting type of a laughing that he's got going on, but he's not worried. He's not worried about it. He's going to come. He's going to set the Messiah's throne up on that holy hill of Mount Zion and people are going to come and they are going to worship him. And we can pray tonight for the kings, the kings and the rulers, the kings of king or president, whatever Uzbekistan has got, uh, that he would fear and tremble at the word of the Lord and that the people would know and rest and trust in uh, the Lord tonight. We'll pray that over the nation. So, uh, Cheryl, you got some things to share about Uzbekistan tonight?